Good to see everybody this morning. I'm glad the online crew can join us. Sorry about last week losing power, um, but hopefully if you missed it, you had a chance to check it out online. So here we are. We got another Palm Sunday. If you think about that, 2,000 years we've been celebrating Palm Sunday since that original event. It's one of those stories that the account is held in all four Gospels, and it's often referred to as the triumphal entry. Jesus coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover. He's hailed as a king. Palm branches are waving everywhere. People are praising with shouts of Hosanna as he rolls into town. It's a story that's told nearly every year on Palm Sunday in churches across the world. And it brings back such fond memories for so many of us. It means Easter's only one week away. Family gatherings, egg hunts, baskets, chocolate rabbits. It also means when you come into church, there's always a kind person standing at the door, isn't there? And they hand you this little palm branch. We even had some kind people today out there. Ron was one of them, was out there just handing it. And they smile at you and you feel good, right? Because you kind of had a toy in your hand of sorts. And it would entertain you throughout the entire sermon, as a child at least. And even as adults, if you take that little palm branch and you run it through your fingers, it seems to make the sermon go just a little faster, doesn't it? Um, And I see some of you are feverishly doing this right now, hoping it'll happen, right? But it's a modern perspective on Palm Sunday. It's a mindset that we can't help but bring to the events of Easter week here in 2023. But that's what presents the challenge of preaching Palm Sunday today. It's a significant challenge because we just don't have the right context that we need. In some sense, we need to be shuttled back to first century Palestine so we can get that right perspective to truly understand why it is that people got so excited about Jesus riding into town on a donkey of all animals. And of course, we saw the importance of context back when we studied the Magnificent, right before Advent. If you were with us then, you know that that first week of Advent, we actually spent the entire sermon unpacking this faith history that we have, going literally from creation to today. And it was so important because we needed to have that context if we were gonna understand why it was that Mary reacted the way she did when she found out that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. Why she had the perspective that she had and why she broke out into this song about the great reversal. Where in God's kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. Where the proud are scattered and the humble exalted. Because the things that the world prizes God despises, and the things that God prizes, the world despises. Do you remember that? I hope so, because we got to kind of go back and understand that if we really want to understand the events of Palm Sunday, because if you think about it, nothing had really changed. Jesus came into the world, he lived with his family, but nothing really changed for the nation Israel. They were still enslaved or in captivity to Rome. So it's really important that we go back and actually unpack that whole thing because nothing had changed. So as a brief recap, we'll kind of walk through this. 
We can think about our faith history as unfolding across five major covenants, and these covenants are absolutely critical. They were promises that God made with man. You can see them up there in yellow, and they were absolutely necessary because from the moment sin entered the world with Adam and Eve at creation, God's people have continually rebelled against him. And if it weren't for the promises that God had made, no doubt man would have been wiped out many, many years ago. And that's because God is perfectly holy. He simply cannot be in the presence of sin. But God is also the author of truth, which means whatever he says, it absolutely has to happen. He cannot break a promise. And so what we see here is a series of promises that God made with man, and they seem to build on each other, none of them contradicting the other. They all build up, demonstrating God's love and desire to care for and sustain his adopted children, despite the fact that they always seem to rebel against him. That's why he never fails his people. He rescues them again and again and again. And that is because he promised. And these promises, these covenants, are so, so important. They're actually the basis on which our faith holds. And they're also the reason we have assurance. It's not our hold of Christ that saves us. It's Christ's hold of us. It's the promises that were made and how they've all been fulfilled. So I'll leave it to you to go back to the Magnificent One sermon. It was at the end of November. And just kind of check out that history. Again, it's a good refresher. Because today, we're going to turn our focus in on that fourth covenant God made with David and up to the current time. That's the part that we want to narrow in today. You remember how even though David was described as a man after God's own heart, he still rebelled. Remember that infamous affair with Bathsheba, and then how he went ahead and had Bathsheba's husband Uriah sent off to the front lines of the battle so that he would be killed. But after David repents... God makes a promise with David that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. Of course, like the other covenants, as soon as they're made, the nation of Israel goes back to their state of rebellion, they're focused on themselves, and they spiral back into sin. In fact, during the time of kings that you see up there, they engaged in every sin imaginable, not much different from today, to the point where by 700 B.C., the part you see up there in blue, God finally gave the nation Israel over to their enemies. The Assyrians and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, and they led Israel off into exile. At the time, many prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they lived, and they were constantly urging, encouraging, and, and pleading with Israel to repent. Those prophets, they also spoke of a coming Messiah and a new covenant, a fifth one. It was going to be unlike the others. It would be written on their hearts, their transgressions forgiven, and their sins remembered no more. That was the term of this new covenant. Really important to keep in mind. So now, this was a time of profound suffering for God's people because of their perpetual rebellion against Him. They were humiliated, literally decimated, reduced to mere ashes, only a remnant remained until approximately 500 B.C. when King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon 
And he also then allowed the remaining remnant of God's people to return to Jerusalem to begin to start rebuilding it. That's also about the time when God went completely silent. He no longer spoke through the prophets for about 400 years. And all the while, the remnant of Israel was subject to the rule of the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. That once great nation of Israel remained in perpetual captivity, oppressed from one captor to the next. But by some count, there were as many as 351 Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah. So the remnant that survived held out hope for a king who would deliver them from their oppressors, a king who would conquer their enemies and restore them once again to a great nation. But that's the problem. Israel always seemed to want things on their terms instead of on God's terms. They just couldn't grasp what this new covenant was all about. Remember, it was going to be different than all the others. The new covenant was not about making Israel a great nation or improving their physical well-being. No, the new covenant was going to deal with the sin that had separated them from God once and for all. God's new covenant was going to involve the Son of God humbling himself to become a man. And that's that very event, the birth of Jesus, that caused Mary to sing of humility in the great reversal. So hopefully now you can see how this is all connected together, how the events of Christmas are connected to these events of Easter. And they seem to be connected through this one word, humble. Humility. It was a challenge then, and it remains our challenge today. It's why we have a humble sign over our entryway. It's why we lower it from time to time. You might have even literally run into it. I know there's at least two counts of people running into it during rehearsals. It all involves cell phones, by the way, but I'm not judging because you all know I had this problem too. So that's the reason why humility is so important is because that's the way things operate in God's kingdom, through the gentle cosmic power of humility. As we learned when we studied the Magnificent, Jesus came on an ordinary night in an ordinary town to an ordinary peasant woman in an ordinary barn visited by ordinary shepherds. It was an ordinary arrival for a humble Messiah who came to usher in an extraordinary kingdom. And in so doing, flip our world upside down. And that's what this phrase, great reversal, is all about. And in the great reversal, God demonstrates for us the gentle, cosmic power of humility, a force Jesus employed throughout the entirety of his 30 years on earth. If you think about it, the very Son of God became the son of a carpenter, insisting on being baptized by a man who ate locusts and wore clothing made of camel's hair. He then spent 40 days fasting in the desert. Think about that. The Son of God humbled himself by fasting, resisting the devil's temptation to operate by worldly power. Remember when Satan had him in, out in the desert, that first temptation. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves 
of bread. And then that second temptation. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down so God will command the angels to rescue you. And then the third one. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory if you fall down and worship me. And to each temptation, Jesus humbly responded with the gentle yet powerful truth of Scripture. And it is within this exchange that we see the profound contrast between the devil's power, which operates through the world, and God's power. You see how the devil used words like command, throw yourself down, I will give you, fall down and worship me. It's a power that operates on the external, at the material and surface level, a power that focuses on external outcomes. It's coercive, bullying, and strong-arming people into submissive obedience. It undermines freedom, and it attempts to manipulate outcomes. It's forceful, directing compliance against someone's will, removing the ability for a person to choose how he or she might desire to behave, and it's destructive, tearing things down so that whatever remains stands above all else. As Philip Yancey writes, and this hits pretty hard, humans have learned much from that power and governments draw deeply from its reservoir. Think about how often we choose to operate this way because we've been influenced by it. But those methods do not represent the way our Lord Jesus operates in humility with godly power. No, he performed miracles and then he asked people not to tell anyone. He washed the disciples' feet, even though they would betray, deny, and even fall asleep on him. He befriended adulterers and prostitutes, despite their disobedience to the law. He was the Son of God who created and sustains the universe, and yet he humbled himself by dying on a cross to save the very people who had rebelled against him. You see, godly power operates in complete contrast to worldly power, how the devil operates. Godly power works on the internal. It transforms lives from the inside out. It is non-coercive in that it displays an unyielding commitment to preserving human choice. Isn't that interesting? Throughout his entire life, Jesus simply presented a truth and then he presented a choice. That's interesting, isn't it? A truth and then a choice. He didn't coerce anyone. It was up to each person to decide how they would respond. And there's tremendous power in that. And yet God's power is also amazingly gentle in how it impacts people. Do you remember when the Pharisees wanted to stone a woman caught in adultery? And Jesus just quietly wrote in the dirt with his finger, he looked up and he said, he was without sin, cast the first stone. Do you see that? Jesus presents a truth and then he presents a choice to those Pharisees. Then he bent down and he just continued writing in the sand. When everyone had left, he looked up to the woman and said, is there anyone left to condemn you? Well, then I don't condemn you either. Just don't do it anymore. A gentle but powerful rebuke. And again, notice 
how Jesus presents a truth to this woman, and then he presents a choice not to do it again. You see, God's power is ultimately constructive. It builds up, it strengthens, it encourages, especially in the midst of the suffering we experience in those valleys of life. It's a gentle, encouraging voice standing against those loud voices that tear you down all day long. You see, the voice of the accuser destroys. He tells you you're no good. You're not contributing. You're not holding your part. You're worthless. But the voice of the Almighty God, he builds up. It's constructive. So now that we have a good sense for how these two powers operate, let's quickly return back to this historical count, kind of pull this all together. After 700 years of exile and oppression, the nation Israel just desired their freedom. They expected the Messiah to ride into town on a war horse, conquer Rome, and restore Israel to greatness. But as you can see, that's essentially exercising worldly power, external, coercive, forceful, destructive. It's desiring to use the exact same power that Israel's oppressors used on them all those years. But again, that's just not how we see God's power operate, especially through the works of Jesus. Scripture paints a much different picture here. It's a picture of humility, a humble birth, a humble life, and a humble ride into Jerusalem on a donkey of all animals. Think about that for a moment. Not the palm branches, not the robes thrown out before him, but focus on that everyday, ordinary donkey, because it represents humility, the power that operates internally, non-coercively, gently, and constructively, and yet it's cosmic in its impact. Sort of like how even the gentlest of waves carve and shape a shoreline over time, as God just does it again and again and again, in the everyday ordinary, of his extraordinary creation. So now, here's the text that Cammy read for us today about the triumphal entry found in John chapter 12. You see the part up there in blue? It's a direct reference to Zechariah's prophecy some 500 years before. So let's check out what Zechariah wrote. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So yes, in keeping with this prophecy, we're to rejoice greatly. Wave those palm branches because your king is coming to you, as Zechariah says. So this is personal. He's coming directly for each and every one of you. In fact, on Palm Sunday, he was right there before them. The righteous one, the one who is without sin, the one who would soon become the sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of the world. Yet another great visual of Jesus' power, that of a humble, gentle lamb. So this is the one who came to save. That's why Zachariah writes here, having salvation. 
Those words are so important. The one who came to forgive God's adopted children from their trespasses and to remember their sins no more in fulfillment of the new covenant. But he didn't come on a war horse wielding worldly power. He came humbly in a manger, the son of a carpenter, riding triumphantly on a donkey. And not just any donkey, but a colt, which means less than four years old. And not just a colt, but it also says a foal, which is less than one year old. This is a young, lowly, humble, of no consequence donkey, carrying the king, who is the savior and Lord of the world. And in that gesture, symbolizing how God's power operates internally through humility, acting on our wills, not coercing, but by encouraging a power that presents the truth and that it presents a choice, a power that recognizes the cosmic strength that lies behind willful obedience, a power that gently suffers wrongs without retaliating, a power that constructs, that builds up, that strengthens what God was so delighted to create. You see, the new covenant wasn't a promise God made to save us from physical, mental, or emotional oppression. It was a promise to save us from the oppression of the sin in our lives, through the humility, through the humble life of Jesus. You see, sin always has pride at its roots. And that's why the first step towards combating sin is humility, humbling ourselves before our Savior, like he taught us to do, repenting and then being washed in his blood. So whenever we're tempted to respond to our circumstances with worldly power, to ride in on our war horse whenever we've been wronged or whenever we've sort of suffered at the hands of injustice, remember that triumphal entry that humble donkey, because God's power always, always, always triumphs over the world's power. And make no mistake about it, just because Jesus is humble and gentle does not mean his power is weak. He is the Lord God Almighty, the great I Am. There is none beside him, and every knee will one day bow before him. And that's the reason, as Zechariah wrote, to get excited and shout aloud on Palm Sunday in 2023. We don't rejoice because of those family gatherings, the eggs, the baskets, the chocolate rabbits, or even those palm branches, but rather it's the one who is humbly mounted on that donkey. That's why we rejoice greatly today. We're to fix our eyes on him, like we sang in that first song, looking to the sun, asking, seeking, knocking, that we might operate the way he does, with humble, gentle, cosmic power. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us in all humility. We cannot do this on our own. Cause us to bend our knee as we contemplate the humble example your son gave to us. Counsel us in the ways of your cosmic power Bring us lower each day so that our wills align with yours. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.